0: Coming up on Venture Voice, the little bit amount of money we were making before we got there that kind of paid the bills, and we were kind of excited about, just was trivial, and it was actually more efficient to get rid of that income stream than it was to maintain it. And because Intel Blogger was Google sized, it just wasn't interesting at the corporate level. So we got to do a lot of cool things and make everything free, but at the same time, Blogger wasn't the highest priority in Google, so we also had to compete for
1: that we never had to compete with before. This is Greg Gallant. Welcome to Venture Voice. This interview I'm about to share with you now changed my life. It's with Evan Williams, who now is best known for being the co-founder of Twitter and also Medium. But back in 2005, Twitter had not yet been invented or even conceived of. In this interview, I'm talking to Ev all about his hot new company, Odeo, which had just raised a few million in venture capital. Back in 2005, the idea of a consumer startup raising a couple million before launching was astounding. Everybody was so burnt after the dot-com crash that nobody wanted to put any money into the consumer internet. So this was pre-launch. Ev is getting ready to launch what's supposed to be this groundbreaking idea, Odeo. Spoiler alert, Odeo did not work. It was a year after this interview in 2006 that they even had the idea for Twitter as a little side project. They were banging their head against the wall with Odeo, trying to make that work, and eventually pivoted to Twitter, and we all know now, audio doesn't exist. Twitter is a huge success, but I thought it would be fun to go back to this interview that I did with Ev. I didn't know him prior to this interview. I called, emailed him. Turned out he was a listener to my podcast already. He'd heard my show prior with Dick Costolo and Philip Kaplan. Had this interview with him. The quality's awful, so sorry about that. But uh, shows you the the times of podcasting in two thousand five. But I thought this would be fun to go back to because it's a reminder that even the best entrepreneurs, even the ones that are now billionaires like Ev, had failures. And here you hear that optimism pre-launch of what it's like going into what might fail. And that is just part of the game of being an entrepreneur. Now, this changed my life. My life kind of mirrored Ev's. I mean, I'm not a billionaire, but my life kind of mirrored Ev's because I was starting a company at the time called Radiotail. That was meant to be a podcast ad network on the side of doing my own podcast. So 2005, Podcast Ad Network. Now I know I was 10 years too early to the market, but I spent a couple years of my life banging my head against the wall trying to make that work. It never did. I lost money on it. But by interviewing Ev, I followed what he was doing. We stayed in touch. I ended up being one of the first people to join Twitter as a user, not an employee, but I got my first name on there, at Gregory, because I was the first Gregory to sign up. And then by being in Twitter early, that led to the idea to launch the Shorty Awards, which is my first really hit success. And then soon after that, Muckrack, which is the software business I still run. So you never know where a podcast will take you. You never know where a crazy new business idea will take you. Listen and enjoy. Evan, welcome to Venture Voice. Thanks for having me. So I saw you started your career with O'Reilly, as far as I could tell. Was that your first gig, or how'd you done up there?
0: O'Reilly was my first real job, so to speak. However, I did actually start a company or two before having that gig back in Nebraska, where I grew up, and I started with a little... Publishing company ended up doing CD-ROMs and multimedia when that was all the rage in like 93, 94, and then morphed that into an internet company actually around that time, which was quite early. I always called that I was in the, the wrong place at the right time. So I was trying to build an internet company in, in 94 in Nebraska. I was mostly explaining what the internet was to folks, but did that for a couple of years before coming out to California.
1: So I've talked to people before for my show who are in New York or in Chicago, and they tell me that it's hard to do an internet company there. But I guess uh, Nebraska is even more challenging.
0: Right? Yeah, I, I listen to your show with De Costello in Chicago, and uh pales in comparison to Nebraska and challenges. I assume Nebraska has gotten better, and there's certainly people around there who who know what they're they're doing now. When we were there, it was very difficult to find talent I and. Mean, not that we knew what we were doing either, so that didn't particularly help. We didn't know where we were lacking, but uh,
1: you know, as you do what you can with where you are. Well, you escaped and you got to O'Reilly. Was that a breeding ground for entrepreneurs? Did you get something useful out of that?
0: Yeah, O'Reilly was great. I went there in early '97, which was kind of the boom times, and my company in Nebraska pretty much fizzled out and wasn't going anywhere. That was a three or four year very stressful learning experience for me, my first entrepreneurial venture. And came out to California and joined O'Reilly as a way to get to California. And it was great. It was the first O'Reilly's a great company. It's it's a unique little company. It's up in Sebastopol, which for those who are around the Bay Area is a small town. It's about seven thousand people in wine country, about an hour north of the city. When you're in Nebraska, that's pretty much the same thing as San Francisco. Once you get here it's a little bit different. But it was a cool little company. I worked in the software group, which doesn't exist anymore, but the software group was kind of a startup in itself and got to do a lot of things, got to work with some really smart folks. I didn't work there very long because I just found that, well, A, I was never good working for other people and um B, just being a single person coming to California and wanting to be involved in stuff up in wine country wasn't exactly the place to be. But the O'Reilly connections were great and we probably saw I ended up doing well with through them later in life and later ventures. So I was always glad I had the opportunity to be there.
1: So can you tell me about the day that you decided to quit and what was going through your head. Did you have your next business venture in your mind already or you just wanted to get out and see what was out there?
0: I didn't have a venture in mind yet. I wasn't quite ready to do that. I always knew I'd start another I'd start another company, but at that time, I had developed some skills just self-taught for um, building web apps. And at O'Reilly, I was actually doing more marketing. Oddly enough, I quit O'Reilly. I, I don't even know if I had a particular plan, but I thought I could get some gigs doing freelance web application development. And ended up, before my last day, I got a gig at O'Reilly doing web application development. So I left my job on a Friday and came back on Monday as a contractor in a, in a different department working on an internet application. And so I was still at O'Reilly for a couple more months. And then I eventually got down to Silicon Valley and I, I worked at Intel for a while as a contractor and then HP,
1: and I did contract development for a couple of years. So from all that development, what was kind of the impetus to start Prya Lab and go off on your own and really build something for yourself?
0: Like I said, I always knew I was going to start another company. So after a couple of years, or I guess it was about a year and a half of doing the development, and learning more stuff, and being sort of in the middle of Silicon Valley during the boom, I decided I finally, you know, kind of got rusted up and decided to it was time to do that new venture. So we started Pyra in actually started conceptualizing and working on it in late ninety eight and then officially launched that and incorporated it in January of ninety nine with uh, my co founder.
1: What was your first product with Pryor? What was the original conception of what to do? Was that Blogger then or did that come later?
0: No, Blogger didn't come to a little later. So it's Pyra by the way, Pyra Labs. I actually started it to develop some ideas around collaboration and of uh, We were aiming to build a web application for personal and project management. It was sort of hard to articulate, but I had some particular ideas about collaborating online and tracking personal information online, uh, meaning like PIM type stuff, like to-dos and tasks and notes and that type of stuff combined in an environment where you could collaborate and share projects. and had this sort of elaborate vision of the super information manager that we started building. And that was the basis for the company. And we started out building that in uh, early 99. And at the same time, we were, it was three people, Meg Horham, my co-founder and friend started working with us soon thereafter, Paul Bausch and myself. We each had our own weblogs, as they're normally called at the time, sort of on our personal sites. And I had the idea for Blogger from early on after starting Pyra, but it just wasn't the thing we were doing. We didn't see it as a huge thing and saw that this uber complicated information manager is a much more practical business idea. So, kind of put it on the back burner, in the back of my mind for a few months, and then we just finally decided to build it, sort
1: of on a whim, later that year in August. What was your intention for it to be used for? Did you think that it would be kids blogging about what happened at school that day or business people talking about their profession?
0: Originally,
1: we designed it for
0: web geeks, really. And it was for ourselves and people who we thought were like us. So we were, um, you know, web developers. So we kind of saw this idea of WebWalks taking off and said, well, that's a pretty cool format to change our personal sites, too. We all had personal sites before that that were more static. And I thought, well, it certainly makes our lives a lot easier if we just write this little app that lets you post to it with with just a form and you don't have to fire up an FTP client or a command line to transfer files and you can do all this stuff with just typing in a form. But the original design of Blogger actually required that you already had a website and we just FTP the file to your site, which is a feature of Blogger that still exists that a lot of people don't even know about. but uh, for the entire first year of Blogger's existence, it required that. So it was really designed for a, a slightly technical crowd who just needed a little content management system. We actually, in the early days, referred to it as lightweight content management because we saw well, a lot of people have sites, and it wasn't that putting up a site or designing a site was the hard thing. Or the other thing they're trying to solve is just the maintenance or posting to it on a regular basis. So we saw it more as the personal publishers but were you know, slightly geeky sort of the web geek crowd.
1: It sounds ironic in that now you see most of the users of it tend to be people who don't know that much about the technical end and the technical people use more complex logging software. What did you do to kind of ramp up the adoption and make it appealing to people who don't know what HTML is? Yeah, it had
0: an interesting trajectory through the years in that it we tended for the more and more mainstream and that was just that was a big challenge because since it was originally designed for geeks when we started trying to appeal to less technically adept audience everything was designed still for these geeks and we didn't want to take features away from the geeks but those were actually the complicated parts of the system that that caused us and the newbie users a lot of headaches so the ability like ftp servers i don't know anything about that and Working with all these different servers. There are actually a lot of things built into the system that if we would have designed it for, for people who didn't know all that stuff in the first place, it would have been much simpler. That said, it's those geeks and those kind of early adopters that helped Blogger get a lot of adoption at first. So it's not that it wouldn't have done that. But basically, a year after we launched it, we actually launched Blogspot, which was the hosting service because we just saw the need, saw, well, Turns out a lot of people want to blog and they don't necessarily have websites. So it's just kind of a no-brainer to build the hosting service. We just thought maybe we'd plug in more easily to other hosting services. But, thought uh, well, the easiest thing to do is build our own. And the reason it was on Blogspot rather than Blogger is because the idea that we still wanted to work with others. We want to make the focus on the publishing tool, not necessarily the hosting service and make it more modular. So once we launched Blogspot so you could do everything from that site is when it really turned the corner to a more less technical audience service. But then over the years, it, it went more that way. So even after, especially after we went to Google.
1: So can you tell me about the Google acquisition, how they get interested in you and how did you guys handle interest from a company like Google?
0: Uh, well, at the time of the Google acquisition, we were about four years in to Blogger. And I had been up and down a roller coaster during those four years from Early starting out during the boom, you know, bootstrapping until we launched, raised a little bit of money, running out of money and lay everybody off of me and then building it back up again. And so it was late 2002 when Google came knocking and we were sort of on a roll I mean, blogging over those years continued to grow, sort of managed to bootstrap the service into making a little bit of money via the Blogger Pro and other paid services through the... Team back up a little bit, had a handful of people. And we actually had an offer on the table to raise another round of money, the first money that we would have raised since early 2000. And so we were feeling pretty good. And when Google approached us at first, we didn't even know why they wanted to talk to us. But of course, they were Google. So we went and talked and, you know, it came out right away. They want to know what we thought about selling to them and that was a surprise, of course. Um, I don't really know that much of the backstory about why they came to talk to us. I and mean, it was sort of an idea someone had. So
1: someone put together and we started talking. As an entrepreneur, once you were in Google, though, how did it feel? I guess it's an entrepreneurial company, but at the same time, sounds as though you're very independent and haven't stayed with any other companies for too long.
0: Oh, right. Well, I haven't I haven't been in very many companies for too long to try and stay in. But once we got to Google, it was very exciting. It took about four months from when we started talking to when we actually were were commuting down to Mountain View, and they hired the the whole team and which was a whopping six people and It was tremendously exciting. I mean Google was tiny company then compared to what they are now, but they were still very highly respected and that was still during the time where this kind of semi boom we're experiencing now wasn't really started and Um, Google is one of the few companies out there that was making money, and or apparently making money. That wasn't even very public yet and doing really good stuff. So out of all the companies to be bought by, obviously, it was sort of a dream scenario. And we got there, and it was very exciting. I was there for about a year and eight months. And during that time, Google just was on this chaotic growth spurt, which they're still on. Went public during that time, launched a bunch of other businesses. And when we got there, everyone was surprised. Google's a search company in most people's mind, maybe secondarily an ad company, but they certainly weren't a blogging company or a more general internet web company, whereas now they have Gmail and Orkut and all these other services where you could see where blogs maybe fit in. But at the time, it was just where the first company that actually acquired that even had any people and where the first website they owned that wasn't on google.com. And it was just like a lot of firsts and a lot of craziness and a lot of people inside as well as out didn't know why we were there.
1: So the rest of Google aside, do you think that Blogger was developed as well inside of Google as it would have been if it were still on its own with you and the uh, US the CEO? <laughs> you never
0: know what, what could have been. I mean, it's hard to say. I think it was developed differently than it would have otherwise. And we got a lot of luxuries from Google that there's no way an independent company would have ever gotten. The priorities changed a lot once we got to Google. It was a company of Google scale. Google in particular is all about volume. So we learned pretty quickly that the little bit amount of money we were making before we got there that kind of paid the bills and we were kind of excited about just was trivial. And it was actually more efficient to get rid of that income stream than it was to maintain it. And because Intel Blogger was Google-sized, it just wasn't interesting at the corporate level. So got to do a lot of cool things and make everything free. But at the same time, Blogger wasn't the highest priority in Google, so we also had to compete for things that we never had to compete with before. But I think Blogger's in a great place today. It was a little bit of a struggle to get there, but I think it's going well. And to Google's credit, they didn't screw it up, which is what a lot of companies do with tiny companies when they buy them.
1: So looking back, is there any one thing that you could say that you've learned from Google as an entrepreneur that you're starting to apply now?
0: Yeah, I think actually, I don't know if there's one thing I could say I learned. I, there's a ton of stuff I learned at Google, which was extremely valuable. And then I'm trying to find out. And that was part of my thinking when I went there. It wasn't a no-brainer decision to do the acquisition for me exactly because it'd been so independent and been such a long road building Blogger and thought what things were looking at. I went to Google specifically because I thought it was, it was the best path to reach Blogger's potential. And secondarily, because I knew I'd learn more at Google and from people at Google than any other path, so the biggest thing I always come back to learning at Google is their ability to think big and that was something I was always impressed with even when I was there every time I saw Larry or Sergey speak or or the way they tackled a the question was always at a higher level or thinking bigger than most people dare to think and when you're an independent company it's especially hard to do that when you're a small company I think those guys always did that and Certainly when you're bootstrapping, it's hard to do that. But the ability to just think audaciously huge ideas, like at the time when they did it, was like, oh, we're going to index the whole web. That was kind of crazy. And you see it in a lot of things like Gmail, we're going to give away a gig of space. Mm -hmm. Things that just changing the metrics on people is a fascinating discipline to have and something that speaks to their phenomenal success. So how are you thinking big now with Odeo? That's a good question. I I think we're thinking big and we're thinking audio is everywhere. It's the most ubiquitous medium there is. And we want to be the best source for, for finding and subscribing and listening to audio as well as creating it. And we have lots of big ideas around that. And we're not trying to, we're trying to be the one-stop shop that does lots of different things and as well as being open at the same time make lots of stuff free and and as easy as possible for tens of millions of users.
1: So how did you come up with this idea? I mean, now you can't, it seems you can't read the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal without coming across a podcasting article. Yeah, that's crazy. But I guess a few months ago, it wasn't out there.
0: Uh, No, And, and I've been very surprised by the trajectory of the podcasting as much as anyone, I think. And the way I came to podcasting was sort of separate from all the hype that's been going on. And it was last year when as story I told my blog about how audio happened for me was talking to Noah Glass, my co-founder who started the service that was offered co branded by Google called Audioblogger. It was the first tool that you call up on the phone and leave a message and it got posted as an MP3 to the web via the blogging APIs we did a deal with him to have a blogger branded version of that called audio blogger. And it was in talking with him that we got to this idea of downloading to the iPod. Now at the same time, other people have the same idea and were ahead of us and developed stuff faster than we did, notably Adam Curry and Dave Weiner and other folks who were really pushing this idea. And I, I I think it's a symbol that a lot of the ideas just are in the air but I certainly give those guys credit for developing it quickly. But the way we came to it is just looking at Audio Blogger and saying, well, this is really cool that people can post audio to their blogs. I always thought that was a nice service and wanted to offer it to blogger server users, but I didn't find that I actually listen to the audio when I came across it. And at the same time, I was commuting down to Google every day down 101 and I bought an iPod and subscribed to audible.com specifically to pass the time on that commute. And I found that as much as I like music, nine times out of 10, I would be more interested in listening to someone talk about a subject of interest to me than I would be to listen to music, especially when I'm driving. So I thought, well, we're all about publishing. We're all about personal publishing and helping people get their voice out there. And we do this with audio, but why does it have to be trapped on the web? And it's like, the place I want to listen to it is in my car via this. Device I bought specifically for listening to things, so and I hook it to my computer. So why couldn't we just transfer the independent fresh content to my iPod every day, and I listen to that on my commute to work instead of these books? So that was sort of the aha moment I had back last fall, and then shortly after that, or I tuned into other people talking about podcasting. I was encouraging Noah to do it at the time. I wasn't really involved, and I was still at Google at first, and then when I quit Google. I still wasn't involved full time with Odeo. I was just
1: sort of advising Noah, and then finally, kind of got sucked in earlier this year. Yeah, I don't know if you'd have the stats for it, but it seems as though cities with worse traffic and longer commute times are going to have faster and faster adoption rates for uh, podcasting.
0: I would guess so. I was trying to do some research on how much time that the average American spends commuting, is something like twenty four minutes a day, which I thought is wonderful. I mean, that's I think a lot of people in Bay Area would certainly love to have a 24-minute each-way commute. I don't know if that 24 minutes was combined or not. So I think you're right. I think you'll see a lot of adoption in the in the cities. Then again, the flip side of that, as I started digging into podcasts and just the idea of audio content in general, I became fascinated by the fact that obviously there are a lot of parallels to blogs and well, blogs have grown tremendously over the last five or six years since we first got into it. One thing I noticed is that the people who read blogs and participated in the blogosphere, one determining factor is how it was often how much time they spent in front of a computer every day. So people whose either job it was or hobby it was to be on the web all the time were those who were blogging. And I don't know if the numbers are, but it seems like there's a hell of a lot more people in the world who don't spend their days in front of a computer than there are that do. And everyone from the postman who's walking around delivering the mail to someone working in their garden or a million other jobs or you know lives that don't involve sitting in front of a computer. To me, it says that the potential for audio content is possibly much greater than that of blogs and as far as reaching a really mainstream audience.
1: Uh, So so I guess you're thinking bigger now than you were with Blogger. (laughs) Possibly, yes. And you're thinking big, but so is Steve Jobs at Apple and Audible's thinking big. And so is Adam Curry and Dave Weiner, like we were talking about. And Odeo's, as you were saying, a one-stop shop. Do you see, are you competing head on with all these guys or are you all going to uh, peacefully coexist? Somewhere in between there, I think. Uh, I
0: don't think we're competing head on with anyone right now. I think there's a tremendous amount of activity and innovation in this space, obviously, and lots of startups that you didn't name as well as those you did as well. As the big players, the Googles and Yahoos aren't going to ignore this either. First of all, I think it's, there's room for a lot of players. A. B. I think a lot of the, the services are complementary. So whereas Apple came in and they saw the same problems we did and other people did to see, well, this this a medium has a lot of potential, but it's just from the average user experience level, it's got some challenges and we want to make that easier. You know, they approached that a lot of the same way as we did. And that's one of the problems we're trying to solve with Odeo.com. They're solving it with iTunes. They're leveraging a lot of the technology they already had, as well as a, obviously a substantial user base and a phenomenal brand. and they're able to get that solution out there and make a huge leap forward for the podcasting world you could look at it as competitive but on the other hand uh, from the audio side they also made it much much easier to use audio so if you go and sign up for audio now you say hey you have itunes 4.9 one click you can have your audio subscriptions in itunes instead of before we required you to download our sinker application, which is like iPod, or you could use any of the other third-party apps. But from a beginning standpoint, you had to download this nine meg file and install it and log in. And now it's a matter of one click. And we feel we still offer a lot of value above and beyond that. So if they want to take care of the plumbing of this, that's great. I think it'll, in the end, result in more people using Odeo. And they do work well together. And you could get some of the same podcasts in the iTunes Podcast directory as you can get in audio. We think we're going to add a lot of value on top of just the basic subscription mechanism. And if you want to pull them down in iTunes, that's great. And in that case, I think they do work peacefully together. And a lot of the other cases, we're trying to be open, as I was saying before, the one stop shop, but that's open at both ends. So if you want to use our creation tools, that's great. You'll, you'll still be in the iTunes directory and the other directories. And if you use Cast Blaster or some other publishing tool, probably you want to still be in Odeo for the distribution. So I think there's going to be a lot of... Today, I don't think any internet ecosystem or, or medium does exist without lots of cooperation. No, there's not going to be an eBay in any
1: world where one company pretty much owns the marketplace. What have the numbers been like for you in terms of adoption, especially since uh, the iTunes 4.9, the iTunes with podcasting support, has that increased your total usage or not affected it? Uh, well, iTunes 4.9 actually
0: was launched publicly before ODIO. so it's only been a couple of weeks for us since we met out in public. We had about 10,000 invitations that we sent out a few weeks ago before we opened the doors publicly. And those are just people who signed up on the site before. So it's really too early to tell. Um, iTunes was out first. iTunes, I think it's safe to say, has bigger numbers than we do at this point. But we're definitely seeing growth and we're just getting started. So I'm feeling pretty good about it.
1: Steve Jobs, watch out. <laughs> we, we work well together. I'm sticking with that story. Great. And, uh, and how, are, how is Odeo funded?
0: Odeo is, up until today actually, was angel funded by myself and most recently one other angel, and we just closed some venture funding today that we're going to be announcing next week, actually.
1: Oh, congratulations. So uh, are we breaking that right here?
0: I suppose, depending on when this goes out. Um, I'm not going to tell you who yet, because it's uh, actually a combination of some angels and a VC, and I need to get signed up from all them to use their names. But um, we have a great group of investors, and we're really excited about
1: it. Well, I guess I'm going to have to do my post-production a little bit faster than usual then. To the podcasters out there, do you think there's a business for them? Do you think we're going to see a lot of people making a living just off creating a podcast?
0: I think there are definitely going to be people who make a living creating podcasts or more generally related to podcasts. Um, in a bunch of different ways. I don't want to hype that idea too much. I think creating content is a tough business in all mediums, no matter who you are. And content is a tougher and tougher way to make money. And there will be money made by podcasting, just like there is money made in different mediums, assuming that the audience continues to grow and they want good stuff. And that money will come from advertising and it will come from selling content. But the majority of people aren't going to make money by creating content. And just like the majority of people who put up websites or blogs don't make money doing that. And they do it for other reasons. Perhaps they make money indirectly or they do it just because for the love of it or a hobby or to connect with other people. And then there's commercial entities that do it as a part of their business. But... There will be money made. I think it's going to take a while to figure out. And then there's going to be ancillary services that I think could create interesting businesses for folks. So say production of content, or I don't even know what the businesses might be at this point, but I think it's going to be a rich ecosystem with a lot of opportunities.
1: Great. I don't think you're going to like this question, but I know you're a big fan of uh, Flickr, which has now been acquired by Yahoo. And you started Blogger. That was acquired by Google. If uh, once this takes off, if, one of, if both of these guys come along and they're interested in getting into the podcasting space and you're made a tempting offer, who would you rather be acquired by, Yahoo or Google?
0: <laughs> oh, gosh. I'm not sure how I can win answering that question. I also don't know that uh, Google want to acquire me again, but um, they, they have different strengths. If you look at the types of companies, while they get compared a lot, they're really different types of companies uh, DNA-wise. Google is very, very much a technology company, and Yahoo is a little bit more of a media company. It seems like the moves Yahoo's making in recent months that they're becoming more technology-driven than they were. They seem really clued into the personal web and web 2.0-type ideas, which are really exciting. That's more that they're... They really get the social aspects of the web and they haven't exactly nailed all those yet with, with um, Yahoo 360 and with Flickr, they're certainly trying. And I think they got a lot of the right ideas or Google, I think is farther behind on those things. And we're not looking to sell the company to either Yahoo or Google anytime soon. So it's very hypothetical question and just commenting on, on the strengths and weaknesses. I think podcasting is going to fit with Yahoo's strengths pretty well because they are more of a media company and they also get the social web a little bit more but someone at google certainly there are lots of people at google who get it and they pulled off the right, right prototype and they could definitely tackle it in a major way
1: so podcasting is taking off Audio is taking off odio has institutional money behind it what are you guys planning on rolling out in the next six months
0: well uh probably take a hint from my my co yeah, you know, Mr. Jobs and uh, friends at Google and, and not comment on such questions. Yeah. But uh, speaking broadly, one thing we promised very clearly and demoed in a lot of cases is the create tools. It's a major part of our offerings, where what we planned on doing from the beginning is to make it really easy to, to not just uh, find and consume podcasts, but create them and publish them. So that's an obvious one that involves a few different things, involves in the browser recording, tool that allows you to do some cool stuff but as simple as possible for producing a podcast. There's a phone posting mechanism going back to the audio blogger stuff, which is sort of we see as an entry level podcasting tool. So anyone who could leave a voicemail can podcast. And then there's there's a bunch of services around the publishing which we hope to help as well, from the keeping stats to to hosting a site to integrating it with a blog or another website, offering one-click subscription to users, that type of stuff. And then on the other side, on the flip side, we have major initiatives to help with the discovery problem. When we're sitting down and thinking about what podcasting needed early on and the parallels with the blogging world, I saw that one of the things that happened with blogs is the ability to publish far outstripped the ability to find and consume the content early on. So what we got all the time is people coming to Blogger and saying, Well, give me blogs to read and our mechanisms for doing that were really poor. In fact early on we had we had directory and search and some other things planned and we actually had directory and search on the site, but we had to kind of scale those back and focus on the publishing tool just because we were lacking resources. But I think that's even still a problem with blogs. Like people hear about blogs, get introduced to the blogging world, any medium where there's millions of potential content sources and everybody's interested in slightly different things, that's obviously a huge problem. And then if you apply that to audio, it's ten times worse because the ability you can't scan audio visually and the cost you know it takes time to download. And so that discovery and sending people to the stuff they're most interested in, I think, is a huge problem. It's gonna take a lot. Uh, tools and it's going to take a lot of technology to really solve that right and we, we see that as something that we want to help solve and part of the way we're going to do that is by building the social and community aspects around the content so we have a few of those now so which is the, the community driven tagging mechanisms comments the contacts so you can see what other people are subscribed to as a way to find subscriptions yourself uh, but we plan to do a lot more of that so it's all about helping people when they come into the or go away with the stuff they're most compelled by and interested in. That's
1: well, very exciting, and I'm really looking forward to hopefully more people finding Venture Voice through Odeo. I can't guarantee anything, but I uh, I think that'll happen. Hey, well, I appreciate that, and thanks a lot for coming on the show. My pleasure.
0: I enjoy listening to the show, and uh, you can find it in my subscriptions on Odeo, so at least uh, some people will find it that way, hopefully.
1: Yeah, I remember when you gave me the beta. I think you were the first one on Odeo subscribed, so it was a uh, real honor. (laughs) Thanks a lot. That's my interview with Ev. It's funny that it leaves off on this optimistic note about podcasting. Ev was right. He was just 10 years too early. I was 10 years too early to all this. It did turn out to be a good business, but it didn't work out for Odeo. It didn't work out for my, uh, my podcasting venture at the time. And yet, you know, I'm sure it was really painful for Ev to shut down Odeo. He actually offered all those investors that he just told you about. He offered them their money back. Many of them took it later to their chagrin, since uh, otherwise they could have kept the equity in Twitter. It was painful for me to shut down my podcasting business. But out of the ashes often rises something better. For Ev, even if he had stuck it out in the podcasting business, he would have never focused on Twitter then. Today, Twitter alone is probably worth more than every podcasting business out there, even given how successful podcasting has been. And I'm very grateful for the business that I've created now, and I'm glad I didn't slog it out in podcasting. So I release this now just as a little pick-me-up to everybody out there who's got a business that isn't working. I can't tell you if you should give it up or not, but if you do, you are joining great company. Another funny side note, if you go and you look up the first ever TechCrunch article that covered Twitter, they say Twitter is kind of cool, but they criticize Odeo for not focusing on podcasting and trying this little side project with Twitter. Now, I've been a little too distracted at some points in my career, but I think it is a reminder you do have to experiment, especially when you haven't yet found that product market fit. And sometimes your experiment, your side project, might be a better idea than your main project. Hey, thanks for listening. Just as a reminder, I'm mixing it up. I'm doing new interviews with entrepreneurs like Mark Cuban, as well as going back to the archives, as I did today with Ev Williams. Please leave a review. It's how people find out about this podcast. Leave a review on iTunes. You know, even if you don't listen to podcasts on iTunes, that's where it'll help me the most. So uh, just pop into iTunes. Here's a review that Dana J. left me 14 years ago. Excellent interviews. Greg Gallant is so good at keeping the conversation focused on getting the most relevant information out of his interviewees. Venture Voice is informative, aspiring, and entertaining all at once. Thanks, Dana. I hope you're still listening 14 years later. And to all of you that are listening now, thank you. And you know what? Hit me up on Twitter. I still have at Gregory. People have offered me money for it. Never sold it. Had it on Twitter all this time. I later grabbed it on Instagram too by signing up early. So hit me up on social media, at Gregory. Till next time, this is Venture Voice.